Hey, it's time for security now. I am Matt Pruitt. I'm not Leo Laporte. He is out and about having some interesting birthday celebrations. We'll leave it at that. But I'm joined this week by Mr. Security Steve Gibson himself. And today we're going to talk about what's going on with Crush FTP, the Enterprise FTP package. There's also some interesting stuff going on with uh, uh, the fingerprint scanners and biometrics on your laptops and devices that are out there. Are they really secure? Hmm. Some think that they are. Maybe they're not. But also, there's some big news happening again with all of these credit agencies out there. TransUnion and Experian hacked yet again. Good grief. All of that more is coming up here on Security Now. Y'all stay tuned. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now, episode 950, recorded Tuesday, November 28, 2023. Leo turns 67. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks. Their zero trust for OT security solutions can help your business achieve 351% ROI over five years. To learn more, find the link in the show description or visit paloaltonetworks.com. And by Melissa, the global leader in contact data quality. Bad data is bad business. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. And by our friends at IT Pro TV, now called ACI Learning. ACI's new cyber skills is training that's for everyone, not just the pros. Visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. Twit listeners can receive up to 65% off an IT Pro Enterprise Solution Plan after completing their form. Based on your team's size, you'll receive a properly quoted discount tailored to your needs. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am Matt Pruitt, and this is Security Now here on Twit TV. Yes, I said I am Matt Pruitt. No, I am not Leo Laporte. That man is somewhere way off in the distance with no telephones, no computers, no no tech at all. So he's probably pretty frustrated right now. I'm kidding. No, it's all it's all for his own good, having himself a nice little retreat this week. So I am sitting in for him and going to sit down with Mr. Steve Gibson as we get into a great episode of Security Now and get into all of the ins and outs and questionable things happening in the world of cybersecurity. How are you doing, Mr. Gibson? Hey, Ant. It's great to be with you this week. Uh, there's one other thing that Leo may be without, mm-hmm. and that would be a birthday party. Uh, <laughs> since right. last week's podcast was titled Ethernet Turned 50, and since no other major topic grabbed the headline for today, I thought it only seemed right to title this one Leo Turns 67. I since dig it. That will be his age tomorrow. Now, wherever it is, where whatever cave he's in somewhere, maybe they'll have a little birthday party for him there. But apparently, you know, if he really is off sequestered somewhere, it won't be happening with his, you know, normal family. They'll have to defer, I presume, until he gets back. Right. But uh, you and I are going to examine the various answers to some interesting questions, including how many of us still have Adobe Flash Player lurking in our machines? 
What can you do if you lose your Veracrypt password? Firefox is now at release 120. What did it just add? What just happened to give Do Not Track new hope? Why might you need to rename your own cloud to Pwn Cloud? How might using the Crush FTP Enterprise Suite crush your spirits? Just how safe is biometric fingerprint authentication? Uh, how's that going with Apache's MQ vulnerability? And have you backed, have you locked your credit bureau access yet? Should pass keys be stored alongside regular passwords or kept somewhere else? What's the best way to prevent techie youngsters from accessing the internet? And is that even possible? What could possibly go wrong with a camera that digitally authenticates and signs its photos? Could we just remove the EU's unwanted country certificates if that happens? What's the best domain registrar? And what was Apple's true motivation for announcing RCS messaging for their iProducts? Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Oh, my. I mean, and, you have a lot gonna, of questions there, gonna, sir. I am so full of questions. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. You got a lot of questions. I hope you have a lot of answers because that's some pretty interesting topics there. And and some is probably going to um, provoke some people and, and anger some people because I'm looking at one of those issues, especially regarding youngsters. And, and I want to I talk to you thoughts. about your because you're a dad. Yep. Yeah, I, I have thoughts. And yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. But first, you know, we have to go ahead and get ready to to thank one of our fine sponsors here for Security Now. And this week, the episode of Security Now is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks. The Zero Trust for OT Security Solution can help your business achieve 351% ROI over five years. That's amazing. Amazing. Uh, Palo Alto offers ZT for OT without the trauma. Keeping operational technology secure and running smoothly is a tall order. It's enough to make even the coolest operations director wake up in the middle of the night with sweats. Yeah, scary. <laughs> now you can have peace of mind with Zero Trust OT security. Zero Trust OT security delivers comprehensive visibility and security for all OT assets, networks, and remote operations. The Palo Alto Network solutions provide exceptional OT protection with more than 1,100 app IDs for OT protocols, over 500 profiles for critical OT assets, and more than 650 OT-specific threat signatures supported. That's quite a lot. It provides best-in-class security while simplifying OT security management. It sees and protects everything in the network, and it automates threat detections while implementing Zero trust across all operations. Now, here's the thing. You can sleep better with the most comprehensive platform to detect, manage, and secure OT assets. Learn how the Palo Alto Network's Zero Trust for OT Security Solutions can achieve 351% ROI over five years. Learn To learn more, find the link in the show description or visit paloaltonetworks.com that's paloaltonetworks.com and we thank them for their support of us here at twit and for security now all right so mr gibson i love how you always start to show out here each and every week with some 
funny little things that we get from our awesome listeners. We have a bunch of them hanging out here in our club Twitch discord. Thank you all for being here. You members, but what's, what's the first thing you got to share with us today, sir. Our pictures of the week, the original concept was to do something security related, you know, something, you know, techie security related. What's happened, however, is that we've, I guess mostly because I was so fascinated by these, the idea of these gates out of the, like a locked gate out in the middle of a field somewhere. It's like, what? Why? So, you know, th- then we've sort of wandered far afield. Anyway, this one uh, was a great one. I, and I, I gave her the caption, sometimes you gotta, you gotta love humanity. So <laughs> this is, th- this is at Euston, E-U-S-T-O-N, railway station in London. And it, it, we have a, we have a, like a, a, a yellow do not enter tape stretched across an escalator, which is not functioning. What's so beautiful is the sign that they put up in front of this. It reads, this escalator is refusing to escalate. Okay, that's wonderful. And it says, this has been escalated to the engineer who is on their way up or down to check it out. Please use the lift. So anyway, just to, just props to people. This escalator is refusing to escalate. Indeed. It's nice. better than just saying out of order. Got to give. Yeah, it exactly. You know, it's perfect. Okay. So speaking of out of order or maybe in order, um, I'm just, this came about because I was still stuck last week on the task of performing unattended server-side Microsoft Authenticode code signing. Uh, I am managing to inch forward with with that challenge, and I've already made one very useful breakthrough, which was to figure out how to programmatically unlock a pin-protected hardware token whose key is stored in one of the new style, that they call it a KSP, a key storage provider, you know, uh, HSM hardware dongle. And I do look forward, because since, since nobody's been able to do this, I look forward to sharing that with the open source community uh, as soon as I come up for air. Okay, so while working on this, last week I discovered an amazing piece of free technology that I would have gladly paid hundreds of dollars for. It's simply called API Monitor. Um, I have a link to it here at the top uh, here in, in the show notes. It was once a commercial product, but it went free about 10 years ago, likely because, incredible as this thing is, it's only going to appeal to a relatively small audience. Ant, I love right. you, but I doubt that you need an API monitor to track down the intermodule API linkage calls in um, Windows apps. You Maybe might be correct, sir. Uh, okay. <laughs> However... When you need one, oh boy! So, I, so you know, it's going to have a relatively small audience. They probably didn't sell many copies, but uh, you know, if this thing is what you need, there's nothing else like it. I would send the guy a donation. I've tried to write to him. I, I've, he, I don't know what happened to him. You know, he's like nominally around, but he hasn't replied. There's not even a donation button on his site. Hmm. 
due to the incredible lack of documentation on Microsoft's next-generation cryptography APIs, they literally call it CNG for cryptography next generation, I've been reduced to doing a bit of reverse engineering. Okay. Uh, this API monitor facilitates the creation and exploration of a detailed interactive log of all Windows module API calls. Now, being an OCD perfectionist myself, I'll admit it, um, I'm not really impressed. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I meant to say I'm not readily impressed with other things that I see. But this thing is truly incredible. I won't spend any more of everyone's time raving about it. You know, this is the sort of thing that that if you might find it useful, you already know enough to go grab it. Uh, it is one of the most utterly stunning pieces of work I've encountered in years. Okay, here's why I'm talking about it. Okay. Um, other than just to give its gifted author more well-deserved public praise. One of... Its process capture modes allows it to be triggered upon any new Windows process that starts up, like in the background or in the foreground, for that matter. So, while I, but in this case, it was the background. While I was coming up to speed on how this thing works, because it's you know it's covered with buttons and and options and stuff. Um, uh, it also has tutorials. Um, um, I had not disabled because it's enabled by default the trace starting processes option, which I did not need. So I kept seeing pop-ups, which I would dismiss. Um, you know, and this is, it's not unusual for Windows, which is very busy in the background, to be just sort of autonomously doing stuff for you. But one in particular caught my eye. A, it, it kept popping up. Adobe's Flash Player Updater, and hmm. you know, it, it like it, it, so. So while this thing was running, this API monitor, it would pop up a dialogue saying, "Dialogue saying, Adobe's Flash Player Updater, you know, has launched. Would you like to trace it?" And it's like, well, first of all, no, but like, why is Adobe's Flash Player Updater trying to launch? So the first few times I was because I was busy doing what I was doing, I just dismissed it. I said, no, I don't want that. But finally, I thought, okay, wait a minute. What is going on? Okay, so um, in my machine, Adobe Flash Player Updater was still alive. The problem with leaving something like this attempting to run in the background is I don't know what URL this thing was constantly querying. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, it was a subdomain of Adobe and not some separate domain from Flash Player's legacy Macromedia days that, you know, might not be renewed. But if whatever domain the updater was querying were ever to become available for any reason, a bazillion PCs around the world apparently like mine, would be querying it for an update. Now, hopefully, Adobe also did the right thing and had any updates digitally signed with a pinned certificate so that the updater would only accept updated code that had been signed with an absolutely specific Adobe certificate. 
Okay. That would, on its face, prevent a malicious actor from injecting their code into these bazillion systems around the world that are all still apparently attempting to update their long-since-retired copy of Adobe Flash. Okay, so here's what Adobe had to say about their retirement of Flash Player. They said, since Adobe no longer supports Flash Player after December 31st, 2020, and blocked Flash content from running in Flash Player beginning January 12th, 2021, Adobe strongly recommends all users immediately uninstall Flash Player <laughs> to help protect their systems. Okay. Well, as we all know, Flash Player was nothing short of a catastrophic security disaster from the moment it appeared. And of course, I mean, like, you know, how many episodes, in, in, you know, in, in, in this podcast's past were we saying, well, once again, you know, exploits of a Flash Player, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, now Adobe was never seen to be using language like Adobe strongly recommends all users immediately uninstall Flash Player to help protect help their protect systems, the systems. while it was a going concern, right? It was only after they've decided to finally give up right. that they said, okay, now get rid of it because it's a disaster. On their Flash Player end-of-life FAQ page, they ask themselves, why should I uninstall Flash Player from my system? Then they provide the answer. Flash Player, they said, may remain on your system unless you uninstall it. Uninstalling Flash Player will help secure your system since Adobe will not issue Flash Player updates or security patches after the end of life date. Adobe blocked Flash content from running in Flash Player beginning January 12, 2021, and the major browser vendors have disabled and will continue to disable Flash Player from running after the EOL date. Okay, so first of all, I have no idea why my computer still had it installed. You know, as we know, at one time, millions of websites and many standalone enterprise applications were dependent upon mm -hmm. Flash Player for their operation. I had it installed for research purposes, and I had been blocking its operation through browsers since early in this podcast because it was clearly a disaster. Right. But had I received any proactive Adobe reminder or suggestion that Flash Player had gone EOL, I mean, we talked about it at the time on the podcast, I, I would have clicked their, you know, remove Flash Player option. I doubt that ever happened. I certainly would have clicked it if it had. This suggests to me that Adobe may not have been as proactive in promoting Flash Player's removal as they might have been. And even now, when for the past several years... Their Flash Player updater code has been running every hour in my system, oh my. probing to see if there's been an update. Why could they not have provided one final update at any time, which would have caused Flash Player's updater to remove itself either immediately or the next time my system restarted? 
this could have been done any time in mm-hmm. the last three years. Mm-hmm. Sounds so, like with the, the call back to home, if you will, is just another way for for Adobe to do some data extraction, potentially say, hey, who is calling the home? This it certainly has that or, ability, right? They, 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 they have a server somewhere, presumably still answering these calls. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe there's nothing there any longer or they're answering the calls and they've got this you know massive library of all the ips of all the systems and who knows what else what other information is sending back you know i i I don't want to disparage them anymore but still i guess my point is why have they why haven't they shut this down themselves because they could Okay, so anyway, I first examined my system's registered system services, and sure enough, right up there at the top, when sorted in alphabetical order, was, you know, A-D-O-B-E, right? Adobe Flash Player Update Service. Um, The service's run state was set to manual. So next, I went over to my system's task scheduler app, and once again, along with scheduled tasks to you know to keep Google Chrome and Microsoft Edge and a few mm-hmm. other odds and ends updated, was the task to run Adobe Flash Update service hourly around the clock. My next stop was Windows Programs and Features, where Adobe Flash Player was once again at the head of the class. I highlighted it and clicked uninstall. And to its credit, it did indeed remove every trace of itself from my system. And good riddance. Okay, so this leaves us with two questions. First, how many of this podcast's security-minded listeners might also still have Flash Player and its very persistent updater present in their systems? We don't know. I did. We don't um, know, but I think it's, again, being someone that listens to this show, they're probably, you know, really security conscious and like you potentially had it on the system just for research purposes. You know, could have been or one of those. Like, I'll, I'll get around to doing it and 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 never did. Right. Anyway, since it doesn't show unless you peek into the proper corners of your system, it might be worth taking a look at your various Windows machines under programs and features. Uh, just make sure that it's not still represented there. And while you're at it, why not scan through that list and remove any of the other cruft that most systems tend to accumulate over time? Yeah. You know, I bet you that there's a bunch of stuff there that you're never going to use again. Okay, the second question is. Why hasn't Adobe at least been proactive in shutting down the probable millions of Adobe Flash Player updater instances that must still be running around the world? The idea of them still having their hooks literally into all of these systems is more than a bit disturbing. Nearly three years ago, they formally stopped further updating of Flash Player. So if they were unwilling to proactively remove Flash Player from everyone's machines, at least they could use everyone's hourly query to remotely shut down all future queries by removing the task scheduler entry and the update service from everyone's machine. 
you know, Adobe never did seem to be highly responsible with their shepherding of Flash Player after they acquired it from Macromedia. But, you know, at this point, it's everyone's individual responsibility to protect themselves. So I just wanted to give a heads up. This, you know, yeah. this happened last week. I didn't know, even suspect that it was still there doing this. If anybody finds it in their machine, clearly it's long since time to get rid of it. Yeah, well, like I, I said, it's probably have. a data grab. I I, I put nothing be, uh, 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 behind the uh, these companies that these big tech companies. It's all data and it's all cash, and they're just going to figure out a way to yeah. continue to capitalize off of all the data that they can get. Uh, Mr. Gibson, one more thing I wanted to point out: uh, our, one of our members here in the Discord mentioned that the API monitor URL. We must mention that it is not an HTTPS um, URL. Oh. So just. That's a very good point. Take it's that not. with a grain of salt. And thank you. I believe yeah. it was Quippy there. Uh, and actually, that, that, fl that flows from my the point I made a while ago, which got me in trouble mm -hmm. uh, with, with our listeners when I said, you know, there's a lot of still very useful stuff on the Internet, which is not HTTPS. Mm -hmm. So it may be, I mean, I'm wondering who's paying for this and, and where this is hosted. It is at his own domain, but uh, that's a very good point. I just scrolled back and looked. It is not HTTPS, so it's, it's just HTTP. So that's a good point. And I don't think I ch checked the signature. Mm -hmm. I normally do. Uh, I don't think I did. So I was bad on me for not, for not seeing if it was digitally signed. Uh, but still, wow, yeah. Be yeah. beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Yeah. So over the weekend, I received a note from a desperate person. Now, I don't know if he's, if he's a listener. It's unclear why he wrote to me. Um, you know, perhaps GRC came up in a Google search for the term Veracrypt because it does because we've talked about Veracrypt a lot in the past. Yep. But in any event, this is what he wrote. He said, hi, Veracrypt password lost. How can I get into my device? Veracrypt site says it's impossible. And then he provides a link. He says, so everything on this device is lost? Please, if you can help, appreciate any slash all help. And he just signed off with his initials, CGS. He, he later sent a second email uh, inquiring whether my consulting services were available for hire. Uh, they're not, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I would have told him the same thing, and I did write back to him. So sorry as we might be for this hapless person, the entire reason he or someone presumably chose to encrypt his device with Veracrypt is because, assuming the use of a good password, just as Veracrypt's FAQ correctly stated, no help is possible or available by deliberate design right and i said he or someone just now because we only have his statement mm -hmm. to lead us to believe that he has any actual legal or ethical right to the data that that has been encrypted on that device Right. Mm -hmm. Knowing mm -hmm. nothing more, it could just as easily be that a thief has stolen someone else's drive, knowing that it contains the password information for that person's cryptocurrency, which could be worth millions of dollars. 
where the only thing protecting that crypto from the theft is the device's VeraCrypt encryption, and that right now, at this very minute, the original true owner of this device is thanking his lucky stars <laughs> right. that first he chose VeraCrypt, and second, he also locked that drive up with a password that no one will ever be able to brute force. However, in the meantime, out of an abundance of caution, this person whose jewels have been stolen uh, has had plenty of time to relocate his crypto to some other wallet where it will now again be safe. In any event, the lesson here is A, use VeraCrypt. You know, it remains the go-to solution for open source, audited, whole drive or partition encryption. B, no matter what, always use a really strong and difficult to brute force password. And C, be very careful to create ample backups of the password you assigned. Again, there, there is, I know our listeners know this, but it's just, as, just as a reminder, there is no way to get your VeraCrypt data back on purpose. You don't want anybody else who were to steal your drive to be able to get your data back. So, you know, make a copy of your, you know, impossible to remember password. You have to. You, you know, that phrase right there, make a copy of your password could sometimes be problematic depending on the person you're saying that to. Uh, what type of suggestions do you or recommendations you have for someone that's going to make a copy of their, quote, master password far as what should it be in? Where should it be stored? That kind of thing. Because we don't, we're not necessarily saying write your password down, put it on a sticky note, and stick it up under the seat cushion. Right. You know? I would not post it behind you when you're doing web conferences. That would not be good. <laughs> um, yeah, or that. <laughs> um, Bruce Schneier, the the security uh, guru that we refer to frequently on the podcast, um, made a comment once that has stuck with me when when asked about that. He said. Write it down. He said, we are very good at managing little bits of paper. He said, we are not good at storing things securely. Mm -hmm. So so the point being, um, I would print it out on a piece of paper and put it somewhere. The, I mean, and... And consider the, the risk profile. It is often the case that you're protecting yourself from someone in Russia or China, you mm -hmm. know, so mm -hmm. some hostile foreign nation. Mm -hmm. They're not going to come to your home from their country exactly. and, you know, get into the, the, the shoe box you have, you know, tucked away un, under the bed. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen. Right. So that would be a safe place to, to store your password. Now, it would not be safe to store it from your kids because right. they would get into <laughs> the, the shoe box that you have. So you have to keep the threat model in mind. Right. If you if, if you keep a um, a safety deposit back box, or if you have a, an attorney you trust, and also remember, you don't have to actually store the correct password. You can store the password with one change being made to it, and nobody would ever know what that change no was, or or, yeah. or 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 drop off a chunk of text that you know you always add to the end of your passwords. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So 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 th there are lots of things you could do in order to arrange to have it available available for sure when you need it. 
But it's it's worth taking those kinds of measures. It's sort of a variation on the theme of what happens if you die. And mm-hmm. like, you know, now what? You know, what about your spouse and, and people you care about and their need to access your stuff in order to, you know, to, to, to help manage, you know, the existence of that you had up up until then Mm -hmm. these sorts of things really do need to be given some consideration Mm -hmm. good point good point so exactly one week ago last tuesday firefox released uh to their to their so-called release channel their version 120 and while this is going on all the time with all of our browsers this one is worth taking a moment to examine as we noted last week with the, uh, with the impending end of Chrome support for Manifest 2.0, which will disrupt the operation of some of Chrome's more popular advertising and tracking controlling extensions, we may soon be seeing a welcome resurgence in Firefox's popularity because presumably he will, they will continue to support uBlock Origin and uh privacy badger and 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 ad blocker and and the other things that the the people really like uh to to use so um uh firefox release 120 as i said brings us a few new features that are worth noting uh for one thing it's right click pop-up context menu when you right click on a link now adds a new feature down toward the bottom named Copy Link Without Site Tracking, which Mozilla says ensures that any copied links will no longer contain tracking information. And I think that's a great new feature. Why would you not do that? As we know, one of the ways that we are being tracked is that links are being embellished with unique identifiers. And if you just copy the whole link... You're going to copy that identifier. And so, you know, wherever that link goes, whoever clicks on it in the, in the future is going to, you know, be sending that identifier to the link's target unwittingly. So copy link without site tracking. Cool new feature. Firefox now also supports the welcome setting. It's under preferences, privacy, uh, privacy and security to enable GPC which we did a whole podcast on a while back. That's Global Privacy Control, which is a newly defined beacon, which is re- is receiving some legal support in order to enforce its and, and encourage uh, its um, adoption by websites. So although this is opt-in during normal browsing, it is enabled in private browsing mode by default. Also, in that same privacy and and uh, the 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 privacy and security region, you'll find the do not track request, which can also and should be enabled. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, after rediscovering the EFF's privacy badger, privacy badger also adds those beacons to every user's web requests. But there's no harm in adding a belt to go with those suspenders. So, you know, I also have some very encouraging news about the future of DNT to share in a minute. Um, but a few more uh, Firefox features first. Firefox's private windows uh, and its ETP uh, strict privacy configuration now also enhances its Canvas APIs with fingerprinting protection. 
essentially continuing to protect the the user's online privacy. As we've discussed in the past, allowing websites to probe various subtle details of how a given browser renders specific pixel illumination to the user's viewing canvas is just one more trick that the trackers have developed to follow us around the Internet. So uh, Firefox has taken measures to obfuscate that. Okay. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yes. And listen to this one. This is a cool one. Firefox is rolling out cookie banner blocking in the browser by default in private windows, but only for users in Germany during the coming weeks. Firefox will, well, but first, Firefox will now auto-refuse cookies and dismiss annoying cookie banners for supported sites. Furthermore, also only for all users in Germany, for the time being, Firefox has enabled URL tracking protection by default in private windows. Firefox will remove non-essential URL query parameters, just like we were talking happens if you right-click on a link and select that option now, which are often used to track users across the web. Again, I'll have more to say about Germany in a minute. Um, Firefox now imports TLS trust anchors, you know, web security uh, security certificate authority certificates from the operating system's root store. Now, that's a little controversial for reasons we'll explain. This will be enabled by default on Windows, Mac OS, and Android, and if needed, can be turned off in settings under preferences, privacy, and, and security certificates. On my Firefox 120, this checkbox is labeled... And yes, it was enabled by default. It says, allow Firefox to automatically trust third-party root certificates you install. Okay, now my problem with this wording is that it's misleading. It sounds as though users, you know, you, because mm-hmm. the word it uses, as though users would be the ones to install those third-party certificates. But that's almost never the case. Presumably, Mozilla is attempting to be more compatible with the third-party TLS proxying middle boxes increasingly employed by enterprises to filter their network traffic. The use of any of those requires that the browser trusts the certificates that those boxes mint on the fly. Those third-party root certs are typically installed directly into the operating system over the network through Active Directory and group policies. Firefox has been unique in that it has always used its own root store, which it has brought along, and has not been dependent upon the hosting operating system's root store. So it must be that this recent move, just now with Firefox 120, is intended to make the use of Firefox easier in such enterprise settings. Now, that's great for the enterprise. We'd like to see more use of Firefox there. Mm -hmm. The worry is that if the EU gets its way with this misdirected, you know, EIDAS 2.0 quacks, certificates mess and is able thereby to force browsers and operating systems to install their member countries' web certificates into their root stores, 
then this mechanism, which has just now been added to Firefox 120, would automatically place it into compliance with that EU effort. Okay, now, given Mozilla's clearly and quite strongly publicly stated position on the EU's EIDAS 2.0 crack certificates, it seems unlikely to me that pre-compliance with something to which Microsoft uh, and Mozilla and others quite strongly disagrees uh, is likely. Uh, remember that rather than signing onto that large open letter that most others co-signed, Mozilla chose to write one of their own, which hmm. the likes of Cloudflare, Fastly, and the ISRG, and the Linux Foundation and others all co-signed. So my guess is that it's the smoother functioning within the enterprise, which was the sole motivation. And note that we do have a simple checkbox that any of us can uncheck if we do not want to have Firefox's root store uh, augmented or polluted by its use of the underlying host OS's root store. Okay, so what about Firefox and this Germany business? Yes, please. There were several interesting changes in Firefox, which I just mentioned, uh, which only benefit German users. What's up with that? Turns out the German courts have been weighing several issues and that their decisions have come down on the side of user privacy and choice. Tech Radar pulled together a nice piece providing this recent news and also some backstory about the DNT and GPC beacons. So with a little bit of editing by me, here's what Tech Radar explained. <laughs> they said, Germany is perhaps the most proactive country when it comes to protecting its citizens' privacy, something that privacy advocates and enthusiasts have been aware of for a while now. And the country recently reiterated its stance against Microsoft-owned LinkedIn, a Berlin court found in favor of the Federation of German Consumer Organizations, which filed a lawsuit against LinkedIn for ignoring users who turned on the do not track function in their browsers. According to the German judge, companies must respect these settings under the GDPR. So that's big news. It's a small victory for privacy. Um, that, But this do not track ruling might end up reshaping how websites and other online platforms have to handle our data more broadly. Adoption and support of DNT has been in sharp decline from its initial introduction back in 2009. Now, ad blocker and VPN service provider AdGuard was was uh, was asked by Tech Radar. AdGuard believes this is a potentially game changing court decision, which could, as they put it, exhume the once abandoned and apparently buried uh, privacy initiative for good. So, a little bit of a more backstory here. Um, uh, do not track headers as we know, are beacons sent by browsers to proactively inform a website not to tr collect or track that visitor's browsing. 
DNT was first proposed by security researchers Christopher Segoyan, Sid Stam, and Dan Kaminsky well back in 2009 to limit web tracking. And I just jumped on this thing full on because it was such a clean, beautiful, simple idea. Just mm-hmm. simply turn on a header that says, I don't thank you very much. I'm a person who does not want to be tracked. A year later, after 2009, the USFTC, our Federal Trade Commission, gave its approval and called for the creation of a universal mechanism to give users more agency over their data. The first web browser to support the new initiative was Mozilla Firefox, which added the feature in March of 2011. Other services followed suit, including Microsoft's Internet Explorer. And and that back then, IE was the big browser at the mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. them adding it was a big deal. Apple Safari and Opera in, were included. Google Chrome embraced the industry trend back in 2012. Now, as, as, our, list, as our longtime listeners may remember, the problem was IE from Microsoft turned this on by default. The fact that it was on by default allowed those who were fighting against it to to, to take the position that, well, wait a minute, if it's on by default, then it doesn't necessarily reflect what the user wants. Choice. So because it's always on, we're going to ignore it. Thank you very much. Mm. Anyway, so AdGuard said the early 2010s was perhaps the time when the enthusiasm for the DNT and its potential to improve privacy was at its peak, unquote. Okay, so unfortunately, after initial success with browsers, the DNT wave seemed destined to dwindle. The problem started from the lack of similar support among websites and advertisers. You know, they didn't want to do it. I mean, they they didn't want to obey it and nobody was making them obey it. So why would they? That's that's where GPC stands to benefit and why this this recent decision in Germany is significant. The The German court is saying, you know, you have to pay attention to this. So. Um, and what's wow, even Google that implemented the DNT feature on its browser refused to, quote, change its behavior, unquote, on its own websites and web services. In other words, naturally, they declined to honor DNT requests themselves, even though even from users on their own browser who had turned it on. Shocking. Yeah. The final nail in the coffin came in 2019 when the group working on standardizing DNT was finally dismantled just due to lack of anything happening. And it's like and and we, we talked about this at the time on the podcast. So. Privacy advocacy groups did not did not want to renounce giving users a better way to, to help protect their personal data and browsing activities. You know, they, they, they wanted to hold on. AdGuard explained that, that they said, quote, while DNT failed to gain much support, the need for a mechanism that would allow people to opt out of having their personal information shared or sold was still strong. Privacy focused experts believe organizations should allow their customers to decide whether to have their information shared or sold in the first place. It was from this need for an alternative that the Global Privacy Control, GPC, was born a couple years ago in 2020. Like DNT, the GPC 
is a signal sent with every web request over HTTP and HTTPS to opt out having browsing data collected or sold. Supporters of this new initiative include many privacy-first browsers and search engines like DuckDuckGo, Brave, and Firefox, and browser extensions such as Abin's Blur, Disconnect, Opt Me Out, and the EFF's Privacy Badger, as I mentioned before. GPC seems to have gained more traction than DNT was ever capable of, until now at least, where DNT may be catching up. And I think it's just that in back in 2009, it was still ahead of its time. The idea was correct, but, you know, pressure hadn't built up enough against all of this going on as it has now. I mean, we even have Google designing their own non-tracking system in order to perform some user profiling in order to deliver more more relevant ads. So, you know, clearly tracking is in trouble at this point in, in our entire industry. So in August of last year, GPC won its first legal battle in California against the commercial retail brand Sephora. And now on October 30th, 2023, that may be that date may be remembered as a milestone, uh, a milestone for the DNT initiative, because that was the date that the Berlin Regional Court ruled that LinkedIn can no longer ignore its users DNT requests. Now, LinkedIn was not silent on this. Um, uh, we'll get to that in a second. But mm-hmm. Rosemary Rodden, a legal officer with the German Consumer Rights Group who brought the lawsuit, said, when consumers activate the do not track function of their browser, it sends a clear message. They do not want their surfing behavior to be spied on for advertising and other purposes. Now, website operators must respect this signal. It turned out that the judge agreed with Rosemary, ruling that LinkedIn is no longer allowed to warn its users that it will be ignoring their DNT signals. That's because, under the GDPR, the right to opt out of web tracking and data collection can also be exercised using automated procedures, period. In other words, the court found that a DNT signal is legally binding. This sets a precedent and revives the all but abandoned idea of do not track. Now, as I said, not everyone is happy with this decision. The LinkedIn spokesperson told Cyber News, quote, we disagree with the court's decision, which relates to an outdated version of our platform and intend to appeal the ruling, unquote. Now, outdated? What's outdated? The LinkedIn platform? If the ruling only applies to an outdated version of the LinkedIn platform, then why appeal it? And surely you can see with the growing support for the closely related GPC signal and with Google, as I said, developing their own non-tracking means to obtain interest categories for web users, you know, this is a tide that is finally beginning to shift. So anyway, more enforcement is likely coming on the horizon. Uh, one decision in one country 
doesn't change the world overnight, but it is sure a step in the right direction. And there are times when having some ambulance chasing attorneys around can come in handy. Can mm-hmm. come in handy. Mm-hmm. Let's let them, you know, sick them on some other large right. websites that are not abiding by this court order, and we'll begin to get things turned around. And, and I think we should take our second break so I can well, catch my breath, and then well, we will proceed to talk about Pone Cloud. Well, I, I wanted to ask you something uh, in following up yeah. on this, yeah, yeah. With, with the DNT. Because I think about all of the websites that I've gone through, you know, throughout the year that are just random websites, whether it be a, a photography site or some online shopping or what have you. Some of them, they put the banner up about tracking cookies. And it gives you the option to reject, so on and so forth. And then there's others that say, hey, our site uses tracking cookies, period. You can close this window and carry on or you can get the heck off our website, period. So this is only going to apply for German sites because I guess we're still going to see a bit of the wild, wild west everywhere else and still have those banners pop up and say, you know, what, you don't have a choice. We're going to track you anyway. Is that what you're right. saying? So, so. The 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 pop up banners and the asking the user for permission or acknowledging that that was something that the GDPR instigated and required that sites do that they that they proactively get users permission mm-hmm. that the DNT and the GPC and you know it's kind of dumb to have two It'd be nice if we just amalgamated them in, in into a, a single beacon but mm-hmm. those are settings that the user can set in their browser so that the browser is itself saying I don't want to be tracked I don't want to have my information aggregated and 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 sold or shared with others. So I I think where we are at the moment is in this confusing set of changing times. So, you know, the GDPR said to websites if you're going to be using tracking, you need to inform the user and obtain their permission. That's why we got all these ridiculous banners right. that you have to click in order to make go away. Um, now the court is saying, you know, even that is, is obsolete. If the user has DNT and GPC beacons on, period, you are never allowed to track them. No reason to put up a cookie banner because right. you can't be using cookies that are going to be tracking them. Right. And that's if they use an automated beacon. Is what you're right. Okay. And all the browsers. I mean, that's the thing that 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 Firefox just added and other browsers are beginning to return to. And okay. so I think I think this is what's going to happen. Uh, basically, browsers are, are simply going to be saying this and websites are going to start having to conform. They're going to, you know, they're, they're going to be kicking and screaming. On the other hand, Google has now formally rolled out their their interest category system yeah. that's what everyone's going to have to switch to right. and and re, you know remember it's way weaker than tracking i mean tracking allows the aggregation of all kinds of crap instead mm-hmm. of just you know just like what are the interests that your recent web behavior has suggested that you might have which is the the, the google replacement system so I have a feeling tracking is not long for the world. As we know, things don't change soon, but they yeah. do eventually change. Right. This is this is a start. This is a start. Sweet. Well, sir, go ahead and, and 
take a take a quick break and get your <sighs> breath back before we get into own cloud and pwn cloud. I'm going to take a few minutes to thank this week's fine sponsor. Uh, this episode of Security Now is brought to you by Melissa, the data quality experts. For over 38 years, Melissa has helped companies harness the value of their customers' data to drive insight, maintain data quality, and support global intelligence. Now, listen, all data expires up to 25% per year. Having clean and verified data helps customers have a smooth, error-free purchase experience. You know, especially this time of year, the holiday season, and people are getting ready for holiday gifts and holiday cards and mailing lists and all of that. It's, this is definitely the time to consider this. Flexible to fit any business model. Melissa verifies addresses from more than 240 countries and uh, to ensure only valid billing and shipping addresses enter your system. Melissa's international address validation cleans and corrects street addresses worldwide, automatically transliterating from one system to another, you know, for example, like Chinese to Cyrillic. Pretty easy stuff there. No, it's not easy, but they make it look easy. Focus your spending where it matters the most. Melissa offers free trials and sample codes and flexible pricing. Uh, they even offer an ROI guarantee, uh, unlimited technical support to customers all around the globe. Once you're signed up with Melissa, it's easy to integrate their service. Uh, there are other services. So you have Melissa identity verification. This this will allows you to increase compliance, uh, reduce fraud and improve onboarding. Then there's Melissa Enrich. Here you can gain insight into who and where your customers are. Now, then there's also Melissa's education portal, which is available to individuals with a valid dot edu email address. Now, that's pretty awesome. Uh, the popular feature is designed to introduce future data scientists to the inherent value of data and its global relevance in an ever-increasing range of industries and applications. So you can download the free Melissa's Lookup apps on Google Play or the Apple App Store, and there's no sign-up required. Validate and address uh, and personal identity in the U.S. or Canada. Check global phone numbers to find caller, carrier, and geographical information. You can also check global IP address information and so much more. Melissa has achieved the highest level of security status available by gaining FedRAMP authorization. Now, while these technologies are exclusively for governmental agencies, all Melissa users benefit from the superior level of security. Melissa's solutions and services are GDPR and CCPA compliant, and they meet SOC 2 and HIPAA uh, hit trust standards in information security management. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records clean for free at melissa.com slash twit. One more time, that's melissa.com slash twit for all of your data cleaning up processes. Good stuff. Thank you so much for supporting the show, Melissa. Really do appreciate you. Now, Mr. Gibson, so on cloud, pwn cloud, <laughs> tomato, tomato, well, one of those things. What's the it deal? It appears here? that anyone running any instance 
of the very popular open, open source own cloud file sharing system needs to take immediate action. As in, stop listening to this podcast right now and oh immediately unplug anything running own cloud to get it off the internet. Um, unfortunately, due to today's ultra swift nature of the exploitation of any publicly announced new vulnerabilities, in this case, it's a remotely exploitable CVSS 10 out of 10, which is difficult to get. It may already be too late, but even if so, at least closing the unlocked front door and working to clean up any damage still needs to be done. Okay, so here's the story. Gray Noise reported the following in their coverage of CVE 2023-49103. Yesterday, they wrote under the title, Own Cloud Critical Vulnerability Quickly Exploited in the Wild, they said on November 21st, 2023, so that's exactly one week ago today, Own Cloud publicly disclosed a critical vulnerability with a CVSS severity of 10 out of 10. This vulnerability tracked as CVE 2023-49103 affects the Graph API app used in Own Cloud. Own Cloud, they wrote, is a file server and collaboration platform that enables secure storage, sharing, and synchronization of commonly sensitive files. The vulnerability allows attackers to access admin passwords, mail server credentials, and license keys. Gray Noise has observed mass exploitation of this vulnerability in the wild as early as November 25th, 2023. Okay, so it took four days from the announcement for mass exploitation to take off. They said the vulnerability arises from a flaw in the Graph API app present in own cloud version 0.2.0 to 0.3.0. This app utilizes a third-party library that will reveal sensitive PHP environment configurations, including passwords and keys. Disabling the app does not entirely resolve the issue, and even non-containerized own cloud instances remain at risk. Docker containers before February 2023 are not affected. Mitigation information listed in the vendor's disclosure includes manual efforts such as deleting a directory and changing any secrets that may have been accessed. In addition um, to this vulnerability, 49103, OwnCloud has also disclosed other critical vulnerabilities, including an authentication bypass flaw, 49105, and a critical flaw related to the OAuth 2 app, that's 49104. Organizations using own cloud should address these vulnerabilities immediately. Okay, so Boy. for that's oh, bad for own cloud users, we have a potential four alarm fire situation. There are three newly disclosed CVEs with ratings of the difficult to obtain ten point zero, a highly critical nine point eight, and a still very bad nine point zero. That 49103 CVE with a CVSS of 10.0 allows for a disclosure of sensitive credentials and configuration in both containerized and non-containerized deployments. The 49105 CVE is the second worst with a CVSS of 9.8. 
It's a web DAV API authentication bypass using pre-signed URLs, which impacts core versions from 10.6.0 to 10.13.0. And the third 49104 CVE with a CVSS of 9.0 is a subdomain validation bypass impacting OAuth 2 prior to version 0.6.1. So, in the case of this first worst mistake, and really, you know, a mistake is what it is. It's not some fancy log4j tricky to, to uh, exploit vulnerability. Anyone who has any experience with PHP knows that you never want to expose PHP's PHP info applet to the public Internet. Yet that's right. exactly right. what this graph API has done. Located down the path, own cloud slash apps slash graph API slash vendor slash Microsoft slash Microsoft hyphen graph slash tests is a get PHP info PHP file. And it can be accessed remotely to disgorge all of the system's internal sensitive data, including all the environment variables of the web server and in containerized deployments, as includes the own cloud admin password, mail server credentials, and license keys. OwnCloud themselves recommends deleting that file and administratively disabling the very dangerous PHP info function. This can be done by simply adding PHP info to the disable underscore functions list in the system's PHP any file. And sadly, that list is empty by default, meaning PHP ships with PHP info enabled. Uh, not on my PHP uh, in instances, but, you know, by default. After doing this, however, do not make the mistake of not also immediately rotating all of the system's credentials, the admin password, the mail server and database credentials, as well as object store S3 access keys if the own cloud instance was hosted by an S3 cloud provider. Again, multiple, I think it was 12 independent, probably malicious, we don't know, maybe they were some security firms, but there were 12 unique IPs identified scanning the internet looking for instances of own cloud. So you, yes. in, in, in this instance, you have to presume your instance was infected by something um, if it was exposed to the internet. Since Essentially, they all were. The second problem makes it possible, that is, that they, the other CVE at 9.8, to access, modify, or delete any file without any authentication if only the username of the target is known and if they have no signing key configured on their account, which is the default behavior, that is, not to have one, you know. That's also obviously quite a potentially serious vulnerability to be able to access, modify, or delete any file without any authentication, knowing only the, the username of the target. Uh, 
And the third 9.0 flaw relates to a case of improper access control that allows an attacker to pass a specially crafted redirect URL, which bypasses the validation code and thus allows the attacker to redirect callbacks to a TLD controlled by the attacker, a top-level domain controlled by the attacker. Anyway, bottom line, everyone using OwnCloud should update to the latest builds and make sure that everything else is still okay As I did say, 12 unique IPs were found to be scanning the Internet looking for instances of own cloud Mm. and and were carrying through with exploits. So update, change all of your uh, sensitive credentials. Uh, It's it's a must do, unfortunately. Um, While we're on the topic of critical vulnerabilities that will wreck your day or your week or maybe even your month. Anyone using uh, the sadly named Crush FTP Enterprise Suite uh, and are therefore currently somewhere around 10,000 publicly exposed instances of it on the Internet must immediately update to version 10.5.2 or later. Back in August, the security firm Converge Technology Solutions responsibly disclosed a critical unauthenticated zero-day vulnerability, meaning you don't need authentication to use it, to, to exploit it, which affects the Crush FTP Enterprise Suite. Having 10,000 of these instances publicly exposed is bad enough, but a great many more are known to be residing behind corporate firewalls, which malware might manage to crawl behind. The exploit permits an unauthenticated attacker to access all crush FTP sites, run arbitrary programs on the host server, and acquire plain text passwords. The vulnerability was fixed in crush FTP version, as I said, 10.5.2, and it affects software in the default configuration on all operating systems. What's more, um, converges Threat Intelligence has discovered that the security patch which resolved this problem has been reverse engineered and adversaries have developed proofs of concepts. So forthcoming exploitation can be presumed. Update immediately. The attack chain hinges upon an unauthenticated query when Crush FTP parses request headers for a data transfer protocol called AS2. By exploiting the AS2 header parsing logic, which obviously has a flaw, the attacker gains partial control over user information Java properties. This properties object can then be leveraged to establish an arbitrary file read and delete primitive on the host system. Using that capability, the attacker can escalate to full system compromise, including root-level remote code execution. So it's really bad. 10,000 instances are public. The patch has been reverse engineered. Those 10,000 servers are going to get attacked. Update to 10.5.2. ASAP if you if your enterprise is using the crush FTP because as I noted at the top you don't want to have your spirits crushed wow with, with something like this because I just looked up this crush FTP are you saying this is 10.5 or um, or greater is where we need to step up to 
They're yep. already up to like 10.9 with this application. Uh, is there any reason why, you know, someone would use this? Because there are plenty of their FTP uh, options out there, including some open source options that are out there. Why would an enterprise not even look at the open source side of things? Well, uh, I did not look to see what crush FTP enterprise suite means. Um, and for example, this, this AS2 protocol is something I've never encountered by FTP. So mm-hmm. it may be that it's got a bunch of extra special features that, that, you know, that, that specifically target it to the enterprise. And, uh, and who knows, a, a suite implies it's, there are other components to it. Yeah, so it, it, so it may be a big package that has a whole bunch of other stuff that is targeted at the enterprise. And this crush FTP server is just one of, of the modules. Unfortunately, it only takes one to be bad yeah. in order to give the whole thing, a, make the whole thing problematic. True, true. So a very interesting set of flaws has been found in the fingerprint sensors manufactured by Goodix, G-O-O-D-I-X, Synaptics. They're a very popular uh, supplier. I, I ran across Synaptics. Uh, they make the, uh, the touch pads in most uh, laptops. And Elon, E-L-A-N. The OEMs who purchase and integrate those sensors and whose equipment is therefore vulnerable to fingerprint sensor-based authentication bypasses include the Dell Inspiron 15, the Lenovo ThinkPad T14, and Microsoft Surface Pro X laptops, just to name a few, which are known to contain these popular sensors. So this is what happens when a hardware-savvy security firm takes a close look at what's going on inside of fingerprint sensors. And as is often the case, the result is frightening. All three of the fingerprint sensors are the good kind, which perform something known as MOC verification, which stands for match on chip. That's what you want since it integrates the matching and other biometric management functions directly onto the sensor's integrated chip. But the the researcher said, quote, while MOC prevents replaying stored fingerprint data to the host for matching, it does not in itself prevent a malicious sensor from spoofing a legitimate sensor's communication with the host, and thus falsely claiming that an authorized user has successfully authenticated. Okay, so to thwart this problem in general, Microsoft created something known as the Secure Device Connection Protocol, SDCP. It's designed to eliminate this problem by establishing an end-to-end secure channel between the sensor and the machine's motherboard. And we know how this can be done in practice. You know, TLS, that is the, that is the, the, um, uh, the protocol that HTTP uses to establish a secure, a secure connection between endpoints in full public view, uh, it works. So SDCP, you know, can can theoretically work. You're able to share secret keys, establish a, a, a symmetric key, and as long as you have authentication of the endpoints, that can potentially be secure. But... 
the researchers designed a novel technique that can successfully circumvent these SDCP protections to create adversary in the middle attacks, as they called them. Of course, now <laughs> that's uh, that's if this is turned on. Get a load of this: the ELAN sensor, which interfaces over USB, doesn't even offer SDCP. So it's easily spoofed simply by sending clear text security identifiers. This allows any device, any USB device, to masquerade as a fingerprint sensor and claim that an authorized user is logging in. In the case of the Synaptics fingerprint sensors, not only was SDCP found to be turned off by default, the implementation used a known flawed custom TLS stack to secure its USB communications between the host driver and the sensor. So, once again, it was possible to defeat the biometric authentication. The exploitation of the GoodX, G-O-O-D-I-X, sensors leverages a fundamental difference in enrollment operations carried out on a machine that's using Windows versus Linux or a machine that tr- that transiently boots a copy of Linux. This takes advantage of the fact that Linux does not support SDCP. So we have what is essentially a protocol downgrade attack. This truly lovely hack is done as follows. Boot Linux, enumerate valid IDs, enroll the attacker's fingerprint, using the same ID as a legitimate Windows user, and again, you can do this because SDCP is not supported by Linux, intercept the connection between the host and the sensor by leveraging the clear text USB communication, then boot to Windows, intercept and rewrite the configuration packet to point to the Linux database, and finally, log in as the legitimate Windows user with the attacker's fingerprint. Essentially, this allows for the installation of an attacker's fingerprint and association to the legitimate user's fingerprint. It's also worth noting that although the GoodX sensor design anticipated this bait-and-switch weakness and therefore uses separate fingerprint template databases for Windows and for non-Windows systems, the attack is still possible thanks to the fact that the host driver sends an unauthenticated configuration packet to the sensor to specify what database to use during sensor initialization. So you simply change that, point it to the Linux database, and now you log in with a fingerprint that you set up when the system had been booted under Linux. To mitigate such attacks, the researchers have recommended that OEMs enable SDCP and ensure that the fingerprint sensor implementation is audited by independent, qualified experts. You know, these guys did that. So we insert our standard refrain there, have the security audited by somebody who wants to find flaws, not by your own people who just finished writing it themselves and assume it works. 
Just for the record, this is not the first time Windows Hello Biometrics-based authentication has been successfully defeated. In July of 2021, Microsoft issued patches for a medium severity security flaw, 2021-34466, that had a CVSS of only 6.1, but it could still permit an adversary to spoof a target's face and get around the login screen. The researchers said that, quote, Microsoft did a good job designing SDCP to provide a secure channel between the host and biometric devices. But unfortunately, device manufacturers seem to misunderstand some of the objectives. Additionally, it's like having it turned off by default. I would call that a misunderstanding. Additionally, SDCP only covers a very narrow scope of a typical device's operation, while most devices have a, have, have a sizable attack surface exposed that is not covered by SDCP at all. Okay, so I think our takeaway from this should be to not overly to not over rely upon the convenience offered by biometric authentication. Yes, it's convenient to be able to hold your phone up and have it look at you and say, oh, that's Steve or that's Ant or whomever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this is why Apple, whose biometric authentication has been very tightly designed by security-crazed engineers, will require the something-you-know to be provided initially when you're unlocking your device following any restart. You know, if I had um, any device whose security was truly critical to me, I'd encrypt its drive and I would supply the key with an outboard USB dongle, not something biometric. In fact, that's what I did when I was in Europe traveling with a laptop during the uh, squirrel tour tour years ago was you know Mm -hmm. it was deeply encrypted and i i used a physical dongle in order to supply to supply the unlock key mr gibson looking at this story uh, i think about there's an old adage of you know if there's a problem typically you can throw some money at it to fix it and i know that may not apply for everything especially when it comes to to um Hardware, computer hardware and whatnot. But I'm looking at these manufacturers, these OEMs that provide this. What was that one touchpad? Uh, hold on, I got to scroll up. Synaptics. Yeah. They're in everything. Yep. <laughs> that, that touchpad yep. is in everything. And typically it's in the, the less expensive laptops that are out there. Yeah. Um, Microsoft. Is is this something, is this on Microsoft or is this on, on Synaptics? Because... Uh, Microsoft clearly got a deal for that licensing to, to, to put it in all of these devices, but yet yeah. Synaptics so dropped the ball by cutting that off, by the, cutting off SDCP by default. So um, it, it, it's probably the case that Synaptics sensors offer SDCP, but I would imagine, so we don't know which of these sensors goes with which of the OEMs that I mentioned. Okay. I would imagine that Microsoft would would require SDCP be enabled. Mm-hmm. The only one of those three of Elans, Synaptics, and Goodix, where the re- researchers found SDCP actually enabled and running, was on the Microsoft oh, okay. uh, Surface okay. tablets. 
right. so so that would be my guess. Okay. I, I, I would be surprising if Microsoft, you know, supported this protocol and Synaptics was allowed to leave it off. It would okay. probably have to be turned on. Yeah, I was thinking about it, and I was like, and then you brought up Apple, and I was like, yep, that's exactly my thought because Apple spends a lot of money on this on this stuff for from a security standpoint, and yep. and those relationships and making sure things are done in a particular way. Um, so yep. I was like, is this just where uh, people are cheaping out on things and should just spend a little bit more money with these relationships? And well, these and, and that's the problem and, is that that you know. As we know, Apple did a really strong job of Im- implementing a fingerprint sensor. You know, they they really we, we we covered it in detail when it happened on the podcast. They nailed this technology. The problem is other people come along with a fingerprint sensor and and the consumer thinks, "Oh, you know, it's a fingerprint. Mine's yeah. unique, and it's not going to be like anybody else's. They're only looking at the, literally at the surface of their skin. Mm-hmm. That that says nothing right. about the technology that implements what happens when that when that skin you know hits the road and actually <laughs> has the, the the fingerprint read. So. So just the fact that, that that it requires some biometrics, it, it implies nothing about the, the the security behind that. Right. And that Elam sensor, did you know, it does, it has no security at all. It's just wide open. Crazy. Yikes! Yikes! Unbelievable. So what's going on with Apache MQ, sir? Well, so we talked about this a few months ago. They had a horrible problem with something known as Apache MQ, a message queuing vulnerability. It was another of those 10.0s. I just wanted to mention that it remains under very active exploitation. A proof of concept exploit was initially posted on Git. Hub. It was later updated to add an English language translation, and then two weeks ago, it was further improved to uh, to um, change and, and basically bolster its TLS support. So by now, pretty much uh, any Apache MQ server that has been left unattended will be spinning its fans as fast as possible because crypto miners have been observed being installed into any still vulnerable servers. They are just, they, they've just been turned into crypto miners for as long as they can run, you know, uh. generating cryptocurrency for the bad guys. Okay. So uh, a public service announcement by way of our major credit reporting bureaus, two of them, TransUnion and Experian were both just hacked with their super-sensitive consumer data exfiltrated. The hacking group named N numeral 4 UGHTY capital S-E-C-T-U so that's, you know, naughty sec 2 is asking I know, is asking for $30 million dollars from each firm threatening to release its customers' data online. And this is the second time the Naughty Sec2 group has attacked TransUnion, having previously done so back in March of last year, 2022. So let me just take this opportunity to once again remind everyone that all four 
of the major credit reporting bureaus support credit locking and that everyone, everyone should be taking advantage of this feature. Given today's cybercrime environment and the fact that those who are holding and aggregating our private information without our permission, no one ever gave these, these, you know, these credit reporting agencies the right to collect all this stuff on us. They just do it and they resell it for money and, and they, they track us. So without our permission, um, um, they have been proven unable to keep it private. So we need to minimize the chance that our private information will, if it escapes, will then be leveraged against us for identity theft. Identity theft is one of the most debilitating and difficult to recover from things that can happen to an individual. A few years ago, I decided that since I was such a large customer of Amazon, I would start routing my purchases through their card to obtain an additional several several percent of savings okay. to apply to apply for their card i needed to briefly drop my credit reporting agency shields to allow amazon's credit folks to verify my credit worthiness what i learned at the time was that it is now possible to ask the bureaus to temporarily drop our shields for a specified duration, you know, like seven days, after which time they will automatically snap back up. So that really removes the last barrier of inconvenience from having one's credit reporting blocked by default. Everyone listening and everyone you care about should be running with their shields up full time. There's just there's just no reason not to. Yeah, I and, agree with and as we start talk, taking some listener questions, why don't we take our last break and then we will see what uh, Christian has asked. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to some of the feedback from our fine listeners. Thank you again, Mr. Gibson. Another great episode so far here on Security Now. And thank you to everybody hanging out, watching us live, whether it be in the IRC or here in our Club Twit Discord. Really do appreciate y'all being here. But... While we take a break, we're going to take the time to thank another fine sponsor for this episode of Security Now. It's our friends at IT Pro TV. But wait a minute. They're actually called ACI Learning now. <laughs> In today's IT shortage, whether you operate as your own department or part of a larger team, your skills must be up to date. 94% of CIOs and CISOs agree that attracting and retaining talent is increasingly critical to their roles. Access to more than 7,200 hours of content available, ACI Learning consistently adds new content to keep you at the top of your game. Your team will thank you for the entertaining training, and ACI Learning's completion rate is 50% higher than their competitors. That says a lot right there. Uh, ACI Learning is, is excited to introduce the cyber skills. This is a solution to future-proof your entire organization, not just the IT squad. You know, a lot of people assume that security is, is all about what's happening in the IT department. Well, the folks outside IT, they ought to be up to date on simple security matters, too. You know, there's a lot of little simple steps that one can take to keep things secure from an information standpoint. Uh, this is a new cybersecurity training tool for uh, all the members of your organization. It's cybersecurity awareness training for all of your non-IT professionals. 
with cyber skills, get flexible on-demand training covering everything from password security and phishing scams, which is usually the main one, phishing scams that gets people, to malware prevention and network safety. Your employees will stay motivated and engaged throughout their learning process with easy-to-follow material. With a simple one-hour course overview, your employees gain attack-specific training and knowledge check assessments based on common cyber threats that will uh, that they'll encounter pretty much on a daily basis because uh, those bad guys out there, they're relentless when it comes to trying to attack data. They'll also gain access to bonus courses, documentary style uh, episodes, uh, so you, uh, your employees can learn about cyber attacks and breaches in their own style. You know, I love that. That's that's pretty flexible because some people, they're not geared towards just the standard lecture, if you will. Some people learn more from a story in, in different types of tutorials. So it's cool that they have this flexibility out there. Uh, ACI Learning helps you invest in your team and entrust them to thrive while increasing the entire security of your business. Boost your enterprise cybersecurity confidence today with ACI Learning. Be bold. Train smart. Folks, visit go.acilearning.com slash twit and twit listeners can receive up to 65% off an IT pro enterprise solution plan after completing their form. Now, this is based on your team size and you'll receive a properly quoted discount that is tailored specifically to your needs. So yeah, make sure you check it out. Go.acilearning.com slash twit. And we appreciate them for all of their support of us here at Twit and on Security Now. All right. So, Mr. Gibson, about time to close the loop and check out what our awesome listeners have sent in, right? Yep. So, uh, Christian, I, I think his name, I would pronounce it Rutrecht. Uh, R-U-T-R-E-C-H-T. He's at high Steve. Try to pronounce it. <laughs> Not sure. If, yeah. If you have managed to catch up to passkey support in Bitwarden, I have not heard it mentioned lately in security now. I've just started testing it on selective services and it works flawlessly across my various devices. I am very impressed, I must say. And we need to mention that Passkey uh, that Bitwarden is a sponsor of the Twit Network. He said, What I would like to know is the view you have on adding all your passkeys to a combined password vault. I know that you have a standpoint that uh, MFA verification apps or physical token devices should be separated. But what about passkeys? Personally, I prefer combining everything for the sake of convenience. I have family members and colleagues that I try to nudge toward using a password manager. For them to be able to use it, it must be easygoing. Even the concept of having something remembering their password for them is complicated to comprehend for some. In my research, I found that the best way of keeping my password security posture up, um, I'm sorry, posture up to date and readily available for access is to have a single vault slash app for everything. I chose Bitwarden for that purpose at the conclusion of my research two years ago, as it was the best hardened platform available, including the support for authentication tokens. And now, passkeys. Keep up the good work. So, Christian, I would classify passkeys exactly as I would passwords. Passkeys 
are just superior passwords because by using public key asymmetric crypto instead of secret key symmetric crypto, passkeys are inherently immune to a great many of the attacks and failure modes that have always beset passwords. In other words, I think it's entirely acceptable to keep passkeys in the same vault managed right alongside your traditional passwords. And as you noted, I do feel strongly that the entire point of multi-factor authentication is to create a clean and clear security boundary for use when remotely authenticating to a higher-than-usual security facility. For that reason, the idea of having a password manager also able to fill in the time-varying six-digit MFA token makes me shake my head. Why bother at all if that's Hmm. what you're going to do? It's true that some benefit will be derived from the inherent time-varying nature of the token. So simple replay attacks will be thwarted. But if you're going to go to the trouble of using some form of multi-factor authentication, why not get as much benefit from it as you can? And that means keeping it separate from your web browser that is able to fill in all the rest of your information. Don't have it also fill in your multi-factor authentication. But, sir, that's that's we want convenience. Users want uh-huh. convenience and stuff to be done like right now. Duh. In fact, if you want convenience, I would say don't bother adding multi-factor authentication <laughs> to any accounts if you're going to have your browser automatically fill them in. That's nutty. Okay, so here's the one that's, I think, interesting, Ant, that I asked you if you had kids uh, about earlier. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read his question. I'll share my reply to him, and then let's talk about it. So a listener named Victor wrote, he said, Howdy, Steve, longtime IT guy here, but recent, about a year, listener, as I didn't really do podcasts until Security Now. I have a question for you that may be something of a rabbit hole, uh-huh, but I'm seeking opinions on parental controls. I consider myself a well-enough accomplished IT guy, but I'm facing a problem that one of my kids is about to step into the realm of getting a phone. We, my wife and I, have held off until now citing COPA laws, but we are out of excuses at this point. The issue is that for all of my IT experience, this kid, my third, is exceedingly more tech-savvy than any of my other kids, having already <laughs> proved uh-huh. <laughs> having already proven their ability to circumvent restrictions on school-operated technology and continuing to do so without any repercussion as the school can't seem to collect any evidence of their wrongdoing. I've done my best to protect the home front, piehole, PFSense router with static routes to nowhere for undesired sites, etc. But once on the phone... The kid will be able to connect when, wherever they please. And I have yet to find a truly secure parental control app, which will do all the standard watchdog things and self-protect from deletion on Apple and or Android. Any advice is welcome. Here's to 999 and beyond. Signed, Victor. Okay, so I wrote to him. Though I never had my own kids, 
During my late 20s, 30s, and 40s, I participated in raising several long-term girlfriends' kids from preteen through their teens. And although I was never more than mom's boyfriend, I was around during some important years, so we bonded, and I've remained in touch with several of them who are now married and with their own kids. So I'm not a total newbie on this front. Victor didn't share the age of his youngest and most technically savvy of the three. So this might not apply if this individual is too young. But if this person is this tech savvy, then perhaps they're not that young. What occurs to me is to wonder whether this particular problem has a technical solution. I think that perhaps the solution lies in parenting rather than in technology. I'm not horrified. (laughs) I'm not horrified by what I, I, I am horrified. I'm sorry. By what is now available. I was distracted. I should explain to our listeners by aunt who just did did a big, you know, you know, yay, congratulations by my saying that it, that the solution lied in parenting rather than technology. My bad, my bad. Uh, uh, no, it's okay. I'm horrified. Thank you for that. I'm I'm horrified by what is now available on the internet, and I completely get it that age appropriateness is a real thing. There are many salacious adult depravities that young minds should not be exposed to until they've obtained sufficient context and maturity to understand them for what they are. But at the same time, blocking feels like a losing uphill battle. The Internet is truly pervasive. If this youngster wants access to the Internet, he or she is going to obtain that access. If not at home, where IT security is strict, then over in a friend's house, whose parents never considered this to be a problem, or by breaking through the school's security. And erecting technical blockades might just present a challenge to make what's hiding behind them seem all the more intriguing. Given what's out there, I understand the dilemma that today's parents face, and I would not want to be in that position today. But I also believe that there's a very real limit to a parent's ability to control what a free-ranging young person is exposed to. I think that if I were in in this place, in, uh, in, in Victor's place, I would sit down with all of my kids as a group, and talk to them honestly and openly about what's on the Internet and why, about how a great deal of what's there does not represent what most people think and feel, about how it's often deliberately extreme, about how behind a lot of it is a profit motive, trying to separate people from their money one way or the other. And I would also take some time to explain about predation on the Internet, about how there are truly dangerous people hiding behind fake names, photos, and identities, that these people are often not who they claim to be. They may well be in a far-off country and not be, uh, and, and not be uh, at all nice people, and that the only thing you ever really know are the people who you've met in the real physical world. I would not pull any punches. I'd tell them, that I'm terrified by the idea of them being exposed to what's out there on the Internet and that the only thing that will keep them safe is their own common sense 
and keeping lines of communication open with their true friends in the real world and with their parents. And look here. First off, let me just give you an applause. <laughs> because everything you just said, I, I we're pretty much in agreement here. Uh, I, I echo you. This this stuff with the internet and I I think back to my my time with my kids. Granted, they're older now. I have right. one in college. This, uh, he's a junior in college. I have a high school senior. And my oldest boy, my stepson, he is like, I believe he's 25 now. You know, so they're they're out and about. But when when phones be, be, began to be a big thing in their lives, I, I was I was tough. I was hard on them. I was like, no, you're not getting the phone, period. You're not getting the phone. And it sucked. I had, had hate to say it that way. It was hard to do that. But I knew that having a phone wouldn't necessarily help them as um, far as getting their work done and, and being, you know, being good students and whatnot. But I also thought that it was going to lead to some social issues with with kids being kids, because kids will make fun of you if you don't wear the right type of T-shirt for whatever yep. reason. And if you don't have a phone, oh, your mommy won't let you have a phone. Exactly. So I knew yep. I was going to be in it for that. But I thought in the long run, they were going to be better off. But just as you mentioned, I explained to them why. I explained to them the realities of the Internet. Uh, there's a lot of things out there that are just woo, wild. <laughs> but then there's also some good stuff on the Internet, great information. And I had to teach them, you know, there's going to need to be a balance. And right now, at this particular age, you're not ready for a phone. I did the yeah. same thing with particular video games. Uh, Grand Theft Auto wasn't allowed in my house for a little while. You know, now when they got older, sure. Now you can play it. Because you have a little bit more common sense and know that's not the reality. Right. Um, but mentioned here in our Discord, I believe it was Berserk, uh, it says 100% this kid would see the parents as a, quote, challenge. I agree. That right yeah. there. I did not want to use tech to get in the way and, and put up firewalls and things like that because all they were going to do is just try to figure out a way to get around it and put a lot of effort in that that they didn't need to when they should have been putting that same amount of effort into stuff that matters like homework, <laughs> you know? So I didn't want to yeah. just throw up a brick wall for everything. I just tried to be upfront and say no when I needed to say no. And um, when it was time for them to be able to get phones and access to the internet and stuff like that, I gave it to them with a couple caveats and just sort of eased them into it. Well, and if nothing else, you're being that strong even if they did go to a friend's house in order to, you know, have their curiosity satisfied, mm -hmm. the fact that you made such an issue of it that, I mean, someone who, you know, their dad was saying th th this is really bad, mm -hmm. even that would tend to create a, a barrier of caution it that, would, a seed, that would serve to help them. It planted a seed because there were instances where they would come back to the house after visiting, you know, so-and-so relative, you know, this cousin, this friend or what have you. And they would pretty much tell me everything they, they saw the other kids doing and they were not comfortable, you know? And I had to tell them, yeah. okay, yes, thank you for letting me know. It's all right that they did this and that or what have you, but that's in their own home under their own parents' jurisdiction, not my jurisdiction. I appreciate you honoring 
our relationship and in our agreement. And, well, it's um, very cool too that they, that they, those lines of communication are kept open because that's the crucial thing you want is that's for them the not to be sneaking around and and keeping secrets and and thinking that you know that they can't share with their parents what's going on. And don't get me wrong, my kids are 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 known as quote hardheads. I, I call them the hashtag hardheads. <laughs> Wait, the, your kids? The I can't imagine that. There's a, there's a reason for that, but. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, um, I do appreciate them being able to come to me and their mother when it comes to stuff about technology and just uh, information security and so forth or yeah. social media. And, and we still have those talks. And like I said, they're a lot older now. And every now and then we still have some conversations about things we see on TikTok or things we see on uh, yeah. Instagram or what have you. Because It's, it's a crazy world just, out there. It's not just the fact that something could be... Um, pornographic or whatever some things are just flat out lies sold as truth right and they need to say hey i need to check my sources here because that doesn't yeah. that doesn't look right you know but yeah kudos to you and, and i i'm just applause to you sir <laughs> so alpha geek asked is that i'm interested in your take of this from a security standpoint, and amp, uh, amp, this is about cameras, so you're going to like this too. Mm-hmm. From a security standpoint, thanks for the, he said, thanks for the years of helping keep my brain sharp as a double E. Your podcast has helped me look smart at important times. So great. So what Alpha Geek was curious about, he, he provided me a link, was an interesting solution to the problem with deep fake photos. Talking about, you know, things being fake on the internet just now, Amp. Uh, the IEEE Spectrum magazine carried an interesting story about a new Leica camera that binds authenticating metadata into the photos it takes, then digitally signs them as they are taken. And there's more. So here's what the article explained. Article said, is that photo real? There's a new way to answer that question. Leica's M11-P, announced in late October, is the world's first camera with support for content credentials, an encryption technology that protects the authenticity of photos taken by the camera. The metadata system can track can track a photo from shutter snap to publication, logging every change made along the way. Award-winning photographer David Buto said... In the last few years, it's become easier to manipulate pictures digitally. Photographers can do it, and when the photos are out on the web, other people can do it. I think that puts in jeopardy the strength of photography, the sense that it's a true representation of what someone saw. In November of 2019, Adobe, the New York Times, and Twitter partnered to solve this problem by founding the Content Authority Initiative, CAI. Twitter left the CAI after Elon Musk purchased the company. But CAI now boasts over 200 partners, gave itself the difficult task of finding a long-term holistic solution for verifying the authenticity of photos. In 2021, it joined with another initiative called Project Origin to form the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity, the C2PA. 
Leica's M11P is the first hardware embodiment of its solution. The camera has a toggle to flip on content credentials, which is based on the C2PA's open technical standard. The M11P then embeds identifying metadata, such as the camera lens, date, time, and location, in an encrypted C2PA manifest. The M11P digitally signs the manifest with a secure chipset that has a stored private key. The manifest is attached to the image and can be edited only by C2PA-compatible software, which in turn leaves its own signature in the manifest. Once published, the image can display a small interactive icon that reveals details about the photo, including the device used to take the photo, the programs used to edit it, and whether the image is wholly or partially AI-generated. It's still early days for content credentials, however, so support is slim. Adobe software is the only popular image editing suite to support the standard so far. The presentation of the data is also an issue. The interactive icon isn't visible unless an application or program is programmed to present it. David Butto said, The way this technology is integrated into Photoshop and Lightroom, which is what I use, is still a bit beta-ish. David used the Leica M11P for several weeks prior to its release, but he says these early problems are countered by one key win. The standard is easy for photographers to use. You shoot normally, right? There's nothing that you see, nothing that you're aware of when you're taking the picture. The Leica's M11P's support for content credentials wasn't the only reason it made headlines. It arrived with an intimidating price tag of... $9,195. Oh, that's uh, just typical for Leica. The article (laughs) said that's a high price for authenticity, but Leica says, exactly as you said, Ant, says the camera's cost has more to do with Leica's heritage. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kieran uh, Karnani, Leica's vice president of marketing, said, quote, if you look at the price points for our M-series cameras, there's absolutely no added cost to have the content credentials feature in the M11P, unquote. And the M11P is just the tip of the iceberg. Canon and Nikon already have prototype cameras with content credentialing support. Smartphones will also get it, get in on the action. TruePick, a startup that builds authenticity infrastructure, has partnered with Qualcomm to make Qualcomm's Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 chips support content credentials. Those chips will power flagship Android smartphones next year. No news organization currently requires photographers to use content credentials, but the C2PA standards influence is is beginning to be felt. Karnani points out that the New York Times and BBC are members of the CAI, as are the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, Reuters, and Gannett. Karnani notes that adoption is certainly a goal. So, Back to Alpha Geek's question. This all sounds great on the surface. A digital camera contains a digital representation of an image, which can be digitally signed by the camera itself. The way this would be done is that metadata would be added to the image. Then a cryptographic hash would be taken of the combined file. That hash would then be encrypted using the camera's private key. 
then at a later time, it would be possible to verify that not a single pixel of the original image had been tampered with by rehashing the image and using Leica's published public key to decrypt and verify that the hash bound to the image matches the one that was just made. But from everything we know of crypto, there would appear to be one glaring problem with this entire concept. Detail. A web server's private key is secure only because no unauthorized people are able to obtain its key. If that key is in a hardware HSM, then that key won't even exist in the machine's memory, making it even less acceptable. Although asymmetric encryption offers many cool features and powers, it does still rely upon a secret being kept. Its private key must remain private. And that's the Achilles heel that I fear any digitally signing camera will face. A web server's private keys are safe only because no one has unauthorized physical access to its hardware. If you can get to the hardware, all bets are off. Just ask the folks that thought that encrypting DVD discs was a great idea. <laughs> they thought, hey, no problem. We'll just embed all of the decryption keys into every consumer DVD player so that they'll be able to decrypt the discs. Right. Back in the day, my copy of DVD decryptor was one of my favorite tools. I have no it comment was, on that. <laughs> it was, oh, it was and still is entirely legal to decrypt one's own DVDs. And I appreciated the freedom that that afforded. In order for this Leica or any other camera to digitally sign anything, it must carry a secret. It's the camera's secret that makes its signature mean something. But the camera is obviously not locked up in some data center somewhere. Just like a DVD player, it must be out in the open to do its job. And everything history has taught us is that these secrets cannot be kept. Not under these conditions. And if that's true, it creates another new problem that we never had before. Digitally verified deep fakes. Mm. Once a camera's secret signing key escapes, deep fakes will be signed and digitally authenticated, making the problem worse than it was before. So it'll be interesting to see how this all turns out. Mark me down as skeptical and a bit worried. Okay, so yes, this one, this story got my attention, and I spoke about this. Back in October on Tech News Weekly uh, with our hosts, Mr. Micah Sargent and Mr. Jason Howell, uh, October 12, 2023. This was right after the Adobe Max Creator Conference. And the big discussion was, of course, AI, but it was also about content authenticity. Adobe, as the emailer mentioned, uh, has been working with the C2PA for quite a while now, a handful of years now. And so we've, we've had some developments on this and it was all good news. But just as you said, there are a couple of caveats. First of all, the 
presentation. I could shoot something with my camera that is certified and has all of the proper uh, encryption to put that badge on the image. But what if I put that on Instagram? Instagram's not going to show that badge. It's not, it's not going to mean a hill of beans, you know? And then I never thought about the aspect that you, you brought up of that key being, you know, out in the public and available to anyone. They could take it and make, some totally ridiculous images that are fake, but they're properly signed. So right. they're still considered official, you know? So right. yeah, this was, um, I, I'm, I'm glad that this is in place. I'm glad that there's um, some, some headway being made here with the different partners with the CTPA. Cause it was Microsoft. I'm looking at the page now, Microsoft, BBC, Intel, Sony, so people are talking about this and they have good intentions, um, especially right now with this being November here in the U.S. and the official start of the U.S. election season. It, it's I think this is really important to figure out a way to get our hands on some of this content that's being put out there is mis and disinformation. Um, but again, this is very early. It's not perfect, but it's a start. So, Andrew Draper said, if the EU demand their certificates are in our root store, could we not just remove them or have a script or extension that does? Okay, so great question. Uh, Many questions remain about this uh, whole unresolved mess. For example, would the EU certs be countersigning traditional certificate authority certs based on the behavior that the eu wants that could be a requirement Hmm. but if not then removing those trust routes would prevent access to those eu web services that had only been signed by the eu certificates and had not been countersigned would these eu certs be trusted all um uh uh, w- w- would they be trusted all by themselves if, if they're standing alone? If not, then we really don't have anything to worry about. You know, so long as a traditional CA also needs to sign a website certificate, the EU signing would simply be adding additional information. But if this were the case, everyone would not be all up in arms over this, and mm-hmm. everyone is. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the EU certs are going to be able to stand alone, and that's a problem. So it appears that the EU wants their certs that way, to be able to stand alone. Would these EU certs carry some distinguishing mark that would allow an automated cert sweeper to uniquely identify and remove them? I suspect that the CA browser forum would require some form of clear designation And the good news is that certs have all manner of means for carrying such markings. This would make a cert cleaner entirely safe. It would be able to identify those certs which were, you know, based on this EU EIDAS law. One potential problem is that users of affected machines, such as in the enterprise, may have limited access to their machine's certificate root stores. But the biggest problem is that while those listening to this podcast and other in-the-know techies might know enough to clean their root stores, most of the world would not. Right. So, right. yeah, even if some of us were to keep our machines clean, 
That doesn't help everyone else in the world. All right. Um, Mike asked, hey, Steve, what company do you recommend for a domain registrar? I currently have all my domains with Google domains, and they're moving to Squarespace. I only need a place to store the domains as my name servers are with various other providers. Thanks, Mike. So without any hesitation, I would and do always recommend Hover. And I cannot imagine why I would ever move. I did move once, and that was away from Network Solutions. They were the original primary registrar of domains for the Internet. But let's just say they did not age well. I became so tired of Network Solutions' constant upselling attempts. When I did anything there, I would be forced to decline one special limited-time offer after another endlessly. Just to renew a domain, I'm, you know, I'm inherently loyal. So I did stick with them as long as I could. But finally, it was too much. So I went looking for an alternative. A good ultra techie friend of mine, Mark Thompson at Analog X, was all has all of his domains with GoDaddy. But GoDaddy's style doesn't appeal to me either. They just don't seem serious. And the one thing you want in a domain registrar is seriousness. They've also had security problems in the past with some of their services, though I don't think with their domain registrar business. By comparison, Hover is just a clean and simple domain registrar. They do offer some other services, but they are never pushed. For a long while, they were advertisers here on Twit. But it was one of those situations where I had switched to Hover and was already singing their praises you know, every chance I got long before they began advertising here. And I still am, you know, for the same reason, singing Mm -hmm. their praises. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's looking for a clean and simple, no frills, no annoying upselling domain registrar, I think will find that in Hover. Uh, And I know that Leo Leo feels the same way. As do I. Cool. (laughs) And our last question from Glenn F., Uh, He said, hi, Steve, I was just listening to SN949 and wanted to let you know that you may have been a bit overly charitable when describing Apple's motives around RCS. Looks to me like Google got creative and used the EU as a cudgel to, in quotes, encourage Apple to adopt RCS. From what I can tell, Apple's RCS announcement appears to coincide with the deadline for their response to the EU. Love the show and just recently joined Club Twit due to all the great content. Glenn. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. So, yeah. Glenn's tweet linked to an interesting article at The Verge. The Verge's headline reads, Google turns to regulators to make Apple open up iMessage. And their tagline is, in addition to shaming Apple for not supporting RCS, the search giant has reportedly co-signed a letter arguing that iMessage should be designed to, I'm sorry, should be designated a core platform service under the EU's Digital Markets Act. Okay, so I read the entire piece and I agree with Glenn's assessment. What Google really appears to want is to force Apple to open iMessage since today's green bubbles are lame by comparison to the blue ones. Mm -hmm. 
I have a text messaging group where one of its five members is an Android user. As a consequence, the entire group is forced out of iMessage into SMS and thus reduced to this lowest common denominator due to the presence of this one individual in our group who is not an an iPhone user. So if Apple were to upgrade the rest of us iPhone people to RCS, then the green bubbles would be at parity with iMessage blue bubbles. But as for opening up iMessage, from a technical standpoint, I cannot see how that's really possible due to the closed security ecosystem iMessage lives within. I bet that's the last thing that Apple would consider doing. But the addition of RCS does seem like a clever countermeasure designed to take the pressure off Apple in this regard. And I think that Google should be happy with it. I know I would be. Um, again, what more could do they need to do? Um, right. Right. Ba- basically giving iMessage features to the, you know, to the to the Android community uh, user community and allowing that to cross over uh into the iOS ecosystem. Yeah. I think that sounds right. Yeah. And I'll just wrap up by saying, reminding everyone, the title of today's podcast is Leo Turns 67. Um, and as I mentioned, last week's podcast was titled Ethernet Turned 50. So I decided to go with Leo Turned 67 <laughs> since that's happening tomorrow on no, November 29th. And even though he's currently sequestered in some far-off cave somewhere with no Internet and no other technology, doubtless contemplating the nature of life, the universe, and everything, you might want to send him birthday wishes, which I'm sure he'll discover once he emerges and rejoins the rest of humanity, much as he'll be rejoining us this time next week. And, Ant, thank you for being my host this week. Oh, Mr. Gibson, thank you so much. This was another fine and fun time here on Security Now. And yeah, kudos to you, Mr. Laporte. Uh, happy birthday to you and, and hope everything is going well in that cave or wherever it is you are right, <laughs> <laughs> right now this week. Oh, man. Again, Mr. Gibson, thank you so much. A lot of fun here on Security Now. It, it's I always enjoyed talking to you and, and listening to your 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 coverage about what's happening here in the cybersecurity space. Uh, granted, a lot of it is I'm not smart enough to understand, but you tend to break it down for even me. And it does help go a long way when I have to talk to those hardheads of mine about cybersecurity and what's going on out here in these internet. So thank you again, sir. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Ant. <laughs> All right, everybody. We would really do appreciate y'all hanging out with us today here in security. Now we do this show each and every Tuesday. It's usually about one thirty Pacific time somewhere in that area. Um, you know, if Mr. Laporte's hosting, it's probably going to be a little bit later because y'all know how he rolls. Oh, wait a minute. I said that into the mic. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's usually about one thirty Pacific time, uh, according to the website, 2130 UTC. I don't know if that's right. Don't check my math. Uh, make sure you check us out in whatever podcast application you enjoy and download the shows each and every week. Just go ahead and set your app to auto download. OK, because that really helps us out. And um, of course, we appreciate all of our Club Twit members for hanging out with us each and every week and supporting us. Club Twit, you say? Yeah. Club Twit is our awesome membership group here at Twit. It's just seven bucks a month and it offers you 
the opportunity to get all of our shows ad free. You get access to our Discord server. Um, we have a live chat going on in the Discord every time the shows are going on and recording. A bunch of different channels in there for forums and great conversations and discussions and memes and lots of fun stuff in there, including people like Mr. Joe Esposito that likes to make funny stickers of some of us hosts here at Twit. So that's just one of the benefits. But it also just it's another way to help support us at the network because real talk, folks, it's hard out here in these podcast streets. It, it's, it's, it's pretty hard out here. So every, every little bit helps us out. We really do appreciate it. It's just seven bucks a month, ad free content. You get discord access. You get only club Twitch sh- clip club Twit exclusive shows, um, such as hands on Mac hands on windows, the untitled Linux show. Uh, there's a Twit plus bonus feed that has things in there like pre and post show stuff that, you know, where we have some, interesting conversations to say the least, such as like, what is Lily doing today before security now? Or um, the Stacy's book club. Uh, we have that coming up here soon. And, and um, some other interviews that we have in, in a twit plus feed. So make sure y'all sign up and check that out and tell others about club twit. All right. That is going to do it for us here today. Thank you to Mr. Gibson. Thank you to the squad there in the, sco- the studio for making us look and sound good today. Mr. Burke, Mr. Jammer B. Hey, we appreciate all the support and we shall see you all next time. Take care. Righto. Bye. Hey, I'm Rod Pyle, editor in chief of Ad Astra magazine. And each week I join with my co-host to bring you this week in space, the latest and greatest news from the final frontier. We talk to NASA chiefs, space scientists, engineers, educators, and artists, and sometimes we just shoot the breeze over what's hot and what's not in space books and TV. And we do it all for you, our fellow true believers. So whether you're an armchair adventurer or waiting for your turn to grab a slot in Elon's Mars rocket, join us on This Week in Space and be part of the greatest adventure of all time. Security.